Aloha, and welcome to Reflections on Interpretation, talking story with guides and interpreters. I'm Tim Merriman, your host, coming to you from the Big Island of Hawaii. My guest this week is Lisa Brochu. I talked to Lisa several weeks ago about kind of the history of NAI and Association of Interpretive Naturalists. As you may remember, if you caught the first one, Lisa is my wife, training partner, and we've worked together for about 20 plus years in the field of interpretation. But she has a much longer career than that and a very successful book on the topic we're talking about today, interpretive planning. Welcome, Lisa. This is your favorite topic, right? Well, I don't know that it's my favorite topic, but it's one that I certainly uh, feel like I can speak to with a great deal of experience behind me. Well, as I recall in our last conversation, you have a degree in environmental interpretation, but did you really think you were going to be an interpretive planner? Not exactly. I, as we discussed last time I was on, we, I had the benefit of a very broad-based uh, curriculum at Texas A&M University, which unfortunately no longer exists as a degree program. Um, but I really thought that I was going to be a field interpreter all my life. And I did start that way. I, I had uh, the opportunity to work for Texas Parks and Wildlife Department as a visitor center manager and uh, interpreter. And what I learned about myself was that I enjoyed that a great deal. However, um, what I enjoyed even more was when the opportunity came up to do consulting work and help somebody else on a larger scale that uh, was a little more appealing than than actually being in the trenches doing the program myself. Um, so I, I guess part of what I hope people understand about interpretive planning is that it's a different skill set than being an interpreter. And while many interpreters go on to become planners and many planners are also good interpreters, it, it doesn't necessarily one doesn't follow the other. Um, yeah, I get that. Because my visitor center, I ran at a state park for eight years. I had to do all the planning and all the exhibit design and even the exhibit fabrication. And I was really aware I was working way beyond my skill set, all three of those. Well, uh, yeah, and I think that happens a lot. Yeah. I think what happens is if there's an interpreter on staff and there's a need for an interpretive plan, um, sometimes the superintendent or whoever's in charge um, will go to the interpreter on staff and say, we need a plan. Uh, you know, it, it has the word interpretation in it, so you do it. Well, and they had the other part of that was, and you have no budget. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and so, you know, I, I don't know how many times I've I've talked with interpreters who feel like they're just kind of cast adrift um, because they they don't really know where to start the process and what they should be including and all of that sort of thing. So how did you learn this process on the front end? I mean, who were, who were you working with that 
kind of got you into the research and well, process? One of the fun things that um, one of the, the classes that I got to take um, during my college career was uh, actually called interpretive planning. And it was a special course. It wasn't in the curriculum, but it was a special course designed by uh, Dr. John Hanna at Texas A&M. And he, um, he got together a bunch of us, uh, mostly graduate students who, um, and a few undergrads who wanted to learn more about the process because he'd been doing planning work and consulting for a number of years in addition to his teaching duties at, at, uh, at A&M. And we actually worked on a, on a plan for a little historic town uh, called Anderson um, that was close to where we were in College Station. And um, it, was, it was just a, a lot of fun. I mean, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the process and learning about kind of how to go about uh, public input and all of the things that that have to go along with that process. So that's kind of where I dip my toes in first. But what happened um, in my in my work life, I um, ended up at a at a point at a critical point. Um, John actually called me and and had an opportunity that he needed to a uh, researcher on one of his projects and I happened to be at loose ends at that at that moment in time and so it was a perfect opportunity to go work with him and Val Sylvie um so cuz they their consulting firm was called Hannah Sylvie and Associates and we had the opportunity to work together on a couple of projects and that that kind of got me turned on to it i i will say that my first venture out into um the consulting world was a little disappointing on on my own i mean um the the first project that i worked on was to develop a plan for a historic beach house in Galveston and uh, I had signed the contract and I had it all lined up and was ready to get started. And then a hurricane came and washed away the beach house. <laughs> and so there was uh, no longer a need to do an interpretive plan for it. And that was my first ever contract termination for convenience because uh, it just didn't, the project didn't exist anymore. I guess that can happen anywhere because I can think of other situations where that has occurred. Um, what was that made you want to stay with this as a role? Well, I think I'm a natural puzzle solver. Um, that's one of those things that has always appealed to me. And, and so part of, part of what I enjoy about the whole process is trying to figure out um how to help people solve problems. And um, sometimes the problem is not even what they think it is. Sometimes it's different and it takes a little outside perspective to see what the situation really is. And so for me, I, I jokingly call it the planning gene. I think people are 
kind of natural problem solvers or not. They prefer to have somebody else solve their problems for them. And if you have that planning gene, that's a good start on this as a, as a career. But uh, for me, it, it was, it's that it's, it's the ability to kind of look at the bigger picture. Sometimes people think that just improving their interpretation at a site is going to solve whatever the problem is. What I have learned over the years is that sometimes it's much deeper than that. And it requires systemic change in the operations of, of a facility uh, or an organization. And so learning more about strategic planning and um, being able to have a broader perspective and look beyond what the next exhibit is, I think is, is really critical for the whole process. Yes, as you know, I have the disorganization gene, the one that makes you go in all directions at once and hope that one of them works out. I, I do remember long, long ago, uh, attending a program that you did at a, um, at a national association for or then AIN association of interpretive naturalists workshop. And, uh, the, the major premise of your talk was, uh, the model of ready, fire, aim. And I always thought that was sort of interesting, but but uh, it doesn't usually work very well when you're talking about um, trying to get to a successful planning project. Well, it's inefficient. So you have a book on interpretive planning. How did that come about? Well, that's actually a, a good segue because the... Um, the subtitle of the book is is the 5M model for successful planning projects. The notion that, that you can kind of throw stuff on the wall and see what sticks is uh, very frequently a waste of resources. So over the course of many, many years um, in a variety of projects, what I learned was that there was no template that worked for every project. There was no one process that worked for every project, but there wasn't any written guidance that suggested that in the field. To work on a written resource that will that would give people a framework, but not a template. And so the 5M model described in the book is is just organized that way as a mnemonic to help people remember what questions they need to be asking. So it's not a fill in the blank type book. It doesn't have forms. It doesn't have any of that. It's it's basically um, to help people think about what sorts of questions should I be asking in any given situation in order to make the best possible choices about how we approach our interpretive communications. It's it's that simple and it's that complex. So does sequence matter on these M's? N not a great deal, although I tend to start with the management M because I tend to be very mission-driven in everything that I do. 
Um, and I like to be, I think it saves time and resources to be working towards specific objectives rather than just let's see what sticks. Um, so I tend to, to work from that end first to give guidance to the project, but, um, and I tend to leave media till last because that is one of the big mistakes I see people make is <laughs> coming up with a great idea. I, I use the example of a map that has lots of bells and whistles, um, punching buttons and things light up and all of that, because I don't know how many projects I've been approached about where they start out by saying, and we've got this great idea for a big map and it'll have lights and bells and whistles and you can see this and that and the other. And it turns out that it, it either doesn't fit the space, doesn't fit the budget, isn't the right approach, doesn't tell the stories they need to be telling and really accomplishes nothing except that it's fun and cool. And there's nothing wrong with fun, cool stuff. I'm a believer in it, but only if it serves your purpose. So I tend to leave media to last until we've investigated all the other M's, which are uh, management, markets, and message, and mechanics, which is kind of an artificial way of saying the, whole, the overall experience, um, how things fit together uh, on site. And that, to me, if you if you go through the process and ask all the right questions and really do the analysis of those other four M's, then the most appropriate media will reveal itself. It's <laughs> it's it's a little bit of uh, it's not magic, but it is a little bit of alchemy, I guess, in that uh, you can take the information you gather from the other four units and pretty easily figure out what's going to work best. And yet I think we've both seen plans that essentially are media plans. They just, as you mentioned about the map, they just got excited and went straight to it and didn't worry about whether it achieved ob objectives or not. Right. Or whether it's appropriate for the audience or any of those things. So what's the most frequent mistake you see people making other than kind of starting with media? I suppose using a template is the one that is the most aggravating for me. Um, in the book, I describe five principles of interpretive planning, one of which is that every project is unique. So every process has to be unique to fit the, the project. And, and that's because all of the variables are unique at every site. And so trying to use a template approach where you just fill in the blank means that nothing you do is probably going to be, I mean, maybe you'll hit the right thing by accident, but it's not a very thoughtful way to, to approach things. And um, it, it's what leads to every place having a brochure, every place having a trail, every place having a visitor center, even if it's not appropriate for that particular location. I really try to dissuade people from using any sort of template approach. And, and the 5M model is absolutely not that. I hope that people don't use that as a table of contents even. I don't even like to see that. I like to see a thoughtful approach to the process. I 
have written literally hundreds of plans, and I can't say that I've used the same table of contents twice. What about this notion that you can just make lists of resources? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, funnily enough, back when we had the class back in the 70s, that was that was one of the things that we were taught was making lists of resources would magically somehow reveal um, something. And it doesn't. Uh, I, I think it's good to have uh, a handle on your resources and know what you've got to work with, but that is not a plan and doesn't really tell you what you need to know to take those resources and tell their stories appropriately. I'd, I'd say the other thing is, is kind of along those same lines is not connecting the dots between um, the M's. So, and, and by that, I mean, um, people will sometimes do a very detailed market analysis and yet they won't use that to inform the choices they make about media. And I think you should constantly be testing against the information that you've gathered to make sure that your media choices are making sense in terms of those other dots. It does no good to plan something that you can't possibly build or maintain because you don't have the operational resources to do that. So that's that's a huge mistake I see make. And and the the last one I would mention is just um, the idea that <laughs> sometimes you know they say you can't see the forest for the trees. I think a lot of times people don't see their their forest and they don't see their trees. Um, <laughs> they're so used to walking past that every day that they don't even think about what it looks like or seems like um, or how people respond to whatever it is they're seeing or experiencing um, because they just, they're too used to it. So getting that outside perspective, um, even if the outside perspective isn't a hired consultant, uh, but is somebody from a, within your organization from a different site, perhaps, um, or a family member or, um, you know, whatever. I, I just think it's important to have fresh eyes look at things always because um, we tend to to just, I mean, I noticed it this morning when I was sweeping up the leavings from my birdcage. <laughs> I noticed there's a spot that I continually miss and it's because I'm used to seeing it there. So I don't, I don't think about it. And, and I, I would say that that's, that's a real common problem. Yeah, I once started an interpretive plan with a supervisor who said, let's do that interpretive plan thing that you were talking about. And I said, okay, we're driving down an interstate highway right now. Shouldn't we do that when we can talk to the board of directors and some of our staff and docents and things? And No, we can do this here. Just get out a pad of paper and we'll do it. Is it, that's a problem too, right? The kind of the top down, we don't need any help, no interaction with. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just think it's, it doesn't, I'm not going to say it can't be successful um, because I have seen happy accidents, but I'm going to say that it's usually not in your best interest um, 
to try to be the lone ranger on this kind of stuff the the more input you can get the better your end product is going to be well you had a planning firm at one time i recall and you actually had several kind of subspecialty experts on your staff yeah yeah we had um uh, experts in exhibit design and uh planning and uh landscape architecture because all of these things work together, yeah. right? So when you have, because you're not just creating, hopefully you're not just creating media, you're creating a total experience and everything matters. So interpretation needs to be part of the architecture. It needs to be part of the landscape architecture. It needs to be part of the way people move through the site. All of those can have an impact on whether your story actually gets through to them or not. Since you've done hundreds of projects, do you have a favorite? Do you have ones that just, when you think about, boy, that was fun, or I felt like that really achieved something great? Oh, sure. I, I And I also have the the opposite of that. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> I have some that I, I, I regret ever taking on, um, but I, I'll, no, I won't talk about those. Um, I, I have a couple of favorites, but maybe one of my most enjoyable, interesting, challenging projects was uh, one that you actually were involved in as well. And that was the uh, work that we did at the Wolong uh, Giant Panda Breeding Center in uh, Wolong, China. And it was a fascinating project because it began with a site that had was really a veterinary center. Um, it was never intended to have public interface. And yet the client, the, the Panda Reserve, was finding that they were, uh, as, as people were moving about more in, in the interior of China, um, that they were getting more visitors than they knew what to do with. And they were having to have their veterinarians and keeper staff um, being taken off their duties to interface with the public. And it was, it was just kind of a mess. So we were brought in by the then U.S.-China Environmental Fund to address that and try to figure out how to uh, create a viable public interface. So part of that whole process involved working to create not only a complete redesign of the site plan of the facility, but uh, creating interpretive media that would help tell the story of what was happening there. And uh, it ended up being a complete redesign of, of everything. And so, as you can imagine, this costs money, right? So the um, one of the first pieces of effort that we put into it was to go over and hold a workshop where we talked with local people, uh, panda experts, the research staff and the, the, the veterinary staff at the facility, uh, and funders, potential funders. And so we had basically that first workshop planning charrette, we had about four days to come up with 
a concept for the redesign and deliver that concept to a group of fundraiser of funding sources um, that included the U.S. Uh, Humane, so Humane Society of the U.S. And so here we are working in the remote areas of Sichuan in China um, with very little resources available to us. So we had to haul in computers, printers, um, all sorts of things. Yes, I remember the night when we went to bed and you were, uh, you said you were going to print something. What happened? We had um, one of the members of the team was a landscape architect, um, Jim Brighton, and brilliant, brilliant landscape architect. And he'd done a beautiful site map, concept map for the for the redesign of the site. And uh, for some reason, the printer decided to stick on that page. And so it printed that same page over and over and over again. And at two in the morning, I woke up and thought, oh my gosh, you know, the printer's out of paper and we don't have any more paper. And I had to make packets for all of the people who were going to be attending the presentation and realized that this one page had printed over and over and over and used up pretty much all of our paper and a lot of the ink as well. And so uh, we basically flipped over the paper, <laughs> printed on the other side, uh, made up enough packets and and used the excuse during our presentation that uh, every page had the site plan on it so that you could easily <laughs> see the see the site plan and put everything into reference as you looked through the the packet of materials that we had developed. So, it, it was a it was a real challenge that was that was back in the days before computers really talked to each other we didn't have internet connections we didn't have we would put some things on a uh, we didn't even really have flash drives we had cds that we could burn and and things that we could plug in and some people used this kind of computer and others used this kind of computer and we had it 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 was perhaps the most confusing thing I've ever done, but within four days, not only did we have a solid plan, but we had funding to move forward. And the entire project eventually got built out. It was fun because we got to also be involved in the, the uh, design development process, writing, I got to write some of the signs and, um, we worked with artists and illustrators and, you know, it was quite, quite a project um, involving a lot of different expertise areas as we went through the process over a period of several years. The entire project finally got built out and was really looking good. And then the uh, giant earthquake in uh, 2008 hit Sichuan and the epicenter was less than a mile from this facility. And uh, basically the entire facility was destroyed and five keepers were lost, um, two pandas were lost. Uh, it was a hor horrible end to what had been one of the most interesting things I've ever worked on in my life. Yeah, I recall we got to go back after the earthquake and see the result and it was sickening because we had seen this beautifully changed visitor experience for this literally I, I think they 
used to tell us it was the oldest of the 24 or 25 panda centers in China and the most successful at breeding and all sorts of kind of checkpoints. And Dr. Fung and Dr. Fu were that the two experts? Dr. Fu and Fung, yep. <laughs> <laughs> they, were, they were interesting gentlemen. It was a cultural experience. And when I asked you the question, I'm wondering what you were going to say. And I'm in my own mind going to Wolong Panda Center. Yeah, well, it, it was truly a, a magnificent experience all the way around and, and a tragic end. Um, the good news is that uh, since that time, that particular facility has been rehabbed as a um, hacking back facility. So as they get pandas at other breeding centers ready to be released into the wild, they go back to that facility for a while um, before they're released. And so, you know, all these things, I guess that's to say, no matter how well you plan something, you never know what's going to happen. Things things happen. And uh, so you just have to kind of uh, do the best you can and and hope for the best uh, and not take anything too personally over, over time. In Illinois, when I worked there, they hired planners and did a really nice design for a prairie visitor center. And the budget cut came down and it took half the money away. So they took the plan and just cut it in half with scissors and built half. <laughs> and when uh, Vince, the interpreter there, showed me the facility, he walked me up a stairs to a wall. And I said, what is this? He says, well, it's the door to nowhere. He said, this is where the other half of the visitor center would have been. And he said, I got to tell you, it doesn't make a lot of sense to just cut a plan in half. Well, you know, that's certainly one approach. Um, not perhaps the best, <laughs> no. but uh it these things these things happen so what advice do you have from for someone who knows a bit about interpretation and they love working with the field but they think they might want to be a planner well one of the things you just said you should know a bit about interpretation before you decide to be an interpretive planner um i think having managed a visitor center and having done interpretive programming in person uh, for a number of years and training uh, really helped me in th thinking about how to approach different audiences and different different situations. I, I think learning the most you can, don't just go to one source. Don't, don't just use my book. Don't just use any other book that's out there. Go to multiple sources and learn as much as you can from as many people as you can. Everybody's got their own way of doing things and you will develop your own way of doing things. Hopefully that draw on the best of all these other processes that you learn. So there's that. I think it helps if you can find a mentor, uh, you know, somebody that can help you uh, develop your own skill set. Definitely think you need to understand how interpretation differs from information uh, because that is a problem that I see frequently in interpretive plans. They, they feel like they have to deliver good information rather than take an interpretive approach. And, and finally, I would just say this. I, I think, you know, there's all sorts of different ways to be a planner. You can work for an agency or you can work for yourself. 
you can be the lone ranger as a planner uh, and and farm yourself out to various different teams, or you can create your own firm. So there's all sorts of ways to do it. Having said that, no matter how you choose to do it, if you don't have a regular salary coming in, um, make sure that you have good backup resources. <laughs> because sometimes I have found as a consultant, you very often are working feast or famine. You, you either have way too many projects on your plate at one time, or you don't have any and you need resources to get you past those lean times. So training matters too, doesn't it? It's an opportunity to get, uh, to learn more about the process from someone who's done it a long time. Don't you, don't you have some, uh, upcoming class? Yeah. Uh, I, I think it's always good to get as much training as you can from as many sources as you can, as I mentioned. Um, I, uh, on occasion, do a, an interpretive planning class that is based on the the book. But um, since we're doing this by Zoom now, uh, the pandemic convinced me that we could do things by Zoom. Part of what I like to do in the class is invite the participants to bring projects that they are currently working on or may have coming up. And we use those as examples in the class and actually work through them. So for example, um, in one of the classes, we had uh, somebody who had started on a thematic outline. They, they sort of knew the messages that they wanted to, to get out there, but they didn't feel very comfortable that they were emphasizing the right things or that it it was entirely appropriate the approach they were taking so we worked on that during the class an actual real world real world example uh, when we started talking about messages and uh, helped refine that thematic structure so similarly we've uh, we've helped people redesign their mission statement um, recraft that so in the classes that i'm doing I'm, I'm trying to keep them very small. Uh, we only take up to nine people in a in a class. And that way there's plenty of time to actually talk about individual situations and really deeply address questions that people have. So it's not just me lecturing. It's um, it's a lot of interaction with with the group. So in the in the class interpretive planning, uh, class, we do spend time on each of the five M's. It just depends on what the class needs, the people, the participants, as to how much time we spend on each one of those. So uh, I leave the agenda fairly flexible for that reason. And uh, we do address all of the all of the M's uh, to whatever extent seems seems most appropriate. This next one coming up will be August 21st through the 24th. We go um, Monday through Thursday from 8 to 11 Hawaii time. Anybody, I mean, I've had participants from Mexico, from Russia, from Italy, um, Canada, all over the United States. So always welcome to do that. Now, the other thing that I do, though, is I don't really talk much about the contract side of things in that four-day period. I reserve that for the fifth day, and it's a separate workshop where I address things like how to write a, 
uh, request for proposal, um, how to write a good scope of service, um, how to write a contract if you're on the other side of the table, and how to interact appropriately with your clients and or your contractors. I've, I've been both. I've had uh, the opportunity to both hire contractors and be contractor. So my goal with, with that four-hour session is really to help people understand how to, how to get the most out of their money. Um, it's not easy to get funds for, for hiring somebody, and um, you don't want to waste a penny of it in making bad bad judgment calls or having arguments with your contractor or you know any of those sorts of things that can go wrong. So um, that is on August 25th. And again, you can sign up for both of them or one or the other. You get more information at our website. Uh, if you go to heartfeltassociates.com slash training, it'll take you to the page that has our um, upcoming training workshops. And I think you've got a CIG certified interpretive guide workshop coming up. September 25th to I believe October 4th. Yeah. So. And, and then it's also got these August um, planning courses and uh, contract admin course as well. So yeah, we still have a little bit of space in the, both of those coming up in August and in the CIG course as well. So it'd be great to, to see some, some of your listeners in either or all of those. Well, I would invite any of you to inquire further. If you need to get more information, don't hesitate to contact me at timfmerriman at gmail.com and we can answer your questions about anything that's coming up in the way of training that either of us provide. And I hope you'll join us next week when we're going to spend an hour with Dr. Larry Beck and talk more about uh, the books that he's written and his work in interpretation. But thanks, Lisa, very much for covering interpretive planning today. And maybe we'll do more later some other time. And I would just suggest to anyone, if you haven't read the book, you can go to National Association for Interpretations website, interpnet.com, and they will sell you the physical book uh, through their store. Or you can go to amazon.com and buy both either the physical book. Again, NAI published it, so it comes from them either way as a printed book. Or you can buy the Kindle book at Amazon and download it and have it in literally a few minutes. Well, thanks for joining me in the discussion today. I especially want to thank Mark Stoffel, who so kindly allows me to use his wonderful mandolin music at the beginning and the end of each podcast. This time it was Driving Me Mandolin on his Coffee and Cake album. Thanks very much, Mark. So join us next Friday. I hope you have a wonderful week. Aloha. Oh, oh.